Tin has been a loyal friend of ours for millennia. The Romans called it Stanum, which is why its chemical symbol is SN today. Tin is easy to hammer into shape. It has a melting point that's low, but not too low. Alloyed with copper, it makes bronze, a metal so useful that we named an entire age of technological progress after it. Tin lets us join other metals together as solder. It's non-toxic, sometimes it even provides the roof over our heads. You can try just about anything with tin. What a good old friend we have in Element 50. Tin only asks for one small thing in return. Do not leave it out in the cold. It's an easy rule to obey. That's not how friends treat each other anyway, so you probably weren't planning on doing anything like that. At least, I hope not. Because if you break that one simple rule, it may very well cost you your life. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we can learn about tin. Almost 100 of the elements are metals, but for a huge chunk of history, we were only aware of seven. Coincidentally, for roughly the same amount of time, humans looked up at the sky and saw seven objects that seemed to act a little different from the stars in the sky. Naturally, people drew connections between them. The largest and brightest of all the heavenly bodies was the sun. As it was king of the sky, so too was it king of the elements, gold. The pale white moon came to be associated with silver. The fastest object in the night sky and the slippery liquid metal were both named Mercury after the fleet-footed emissary of Roman mythology. Lovely Venus was compared to warmly colored copper. Mars famously shines bright red because swirling storms of rust scatter red light throughout its sky. Ancient astronomers couldn't have known that, so it's mostly a lucky coincidence that they linked that planet with iron. Dull and heavy lead matched with Saturn which sluggishly plods through space. And then... Well... Then one planet and one metal were left over. So the sages associated those two with each other not because they wanted to, but because they kind of had to. Anyone who was ever picked last in gym class can relate. That, however, is not the reason 
why Tin cries. Tin will scream to announce its pain when it's bent out of shape. Literally, if you take a tin bar firmly in both hands and bend, you'll hear a sound that's called tin cry or tin scream. It's honestly not as impressive as you would think. It's not even accurate, really. The sound is more akin to a bowl of Rice Krispies with freshly poured milk. Hear for yourself. Apologies to those of you with misophonia. Epithets aside, the reason this happens is because microscopic sheets of crystallized tin are sliding past each other. It's similar to what happens at the San Andreas Fault, where the Pacific Tectonic Plate slides past the North American Plate, building up tension before releasing it in seismic shockwaves. A more appropriate name for this phenomenon, then, might be Tinquake. It's a strange little quirk, but it's not any kind of warning sign. You will not be irradiated, asphyxiated, contaminated, incinerated, disintegrated, or assassinated with tin. These qualities, along with its resistance to corrosion, make it an ideal material for handling food. People throughout the ages have used tin for their pots, pans, plates, cups, and cutlery. But the most prominent culinary use of Element 50 is a relatively modern invention. And it was nothing short of revolutionary. An army travels on its stomach, or so the saying goes... Keeping an army fed is not just a logistical matter for the aspiring conqueror, but an issue of morale as well. The methods of food preservation available for most of history were problematic in both regards. Fermentation, drying, and sugaring have all been used as preservation methods for thousands of years. But they all have one thing in common. They take an awfully long time. That's not terribly practical when feeding an army on the move. On top of that, those foods often didn't taste so great. At least, not when that's the only thing on the menu. When you're asking soldiers to march dozens of miles in cold rain just to meet the end of a bayonet, the least you can do is give them a decent meal. Soldiers serving in the French army at the end of the 18th century enjoyed no such luxury, living entirely off a diet of salted meat and bread. So in 1795, the French government offered a bounty of 12,000 francs to anyone who could invent a new, faster, more palatable way to preserve food. Competition was not especially fierce, 
but one man in particular was very determined to win that prize. Nicolas Appert, a chef and confectioner whom we might as well also call a chemist. He thought two things were needed to successfully preserve food, the absence of air and the presence of heat. With that in mind, he filled glass bottles to the brim with soups, stews, fruits, and vegetables. He boiled them for several hours, then sealed them closed with cork, wires, and wax. He spent several years fine-tuning this recipe, though even his early trial runs were met with exceptional praise. For instance, in 1805, the Almanache de Gourmand read, in each bottle, and at little cost, is a glorious sweetness that recalls the month of May in the heart of winter. Other reports stated that the preserved vegetables have all the freshness and flavor of hand-picked vegetables, and that Appert's method fixes the seasons, so much so that spring, summer, and autumn live in bottles. This might all sound... A little surprising if you've ever eaten canned peas, but you'd probably be ebullient too if you'd been living off a diet of salt pork and crackers. It was not surprising when Appert won the French government's prize in 1810, and he used that 12,000 franc purse to build an industrial canning factory that remained in operation until 1933. British merchant Peter Durand took it from there. He did for the container what Appert did for the food inside. He increased its durability. Glass is inert and tolerates heat, but it's somewhat fragile. On a long campaign, military leaders need to know they won't lose their rations just because of a bumpy road. So Durand replaced the glass bottles with iron cans, staving off rust by plating them with tin. This iteration of canning was nothing short of a miracle. The only slight annoyance was that no one had bothered to invent a can opener. For nearly 50 years, retrieving the goods contained within was a frustrating exercise involving a hammer and chisel, or a pocket knife, and a rock. Inconveniences aside, this new container of tin allowed the brave souls who ventured into the blank areas of the map to travel farther than ever before. At the turn of the 20th century, those frontiers were the poles at either end of the earth. Hostile, lifeless, full of unknown dangers, and weeks away from human civilization, the North and South Poles had more in common with the moon than any other great unknown on earth. After Robert Perry and Frederick Cook each claimed to have independently reached the North Pole in 1909, the South Pole was all that remained. 
British explorer Robert Falcon Scott and Norwegian Roald Amundsen were the two men who would lead competing expeditions to the bottom of the planet. Scott's campaign was sent off with much fanfare. Photographs, marching bands, cheering crowds. But it was almost immediately beset with misfortune. Two days after setting sail from New Zealand, two of the group's 19 ponies were killed in a violent storm. They were lucky not to have lost the entire ship. Months later, while struggling to set up camp at Ross Island, Scott's men caught a glimpse of Amundsen's dog sled racing across the bright white landscape. Scott's ponies were less suited to the deep snow, and moved slowly even under the best of circumstances. Whenever it seemed like Scott's team had hit rock bottom, the situation became almost comically worse. One night, the men heard a great cracking sound. When they left their tents to investigate, they discovered that they were not on terra firma, but stranded atop a drifting ice floe. On a separate floe alongside them were the ponies. As they tried to recover, the situation became more dire. Black heads and immense fins started to appear out of the water, and before long, more than a dozen enormous orcas were circling the ice, hungrily eyeing the panicking party. I'll spare you the gruesome details, and simply say, things did not end well for the ponies. Now, on top of frostbite, snow blindness, and exhaustion, Scott's team had to haul their heavy sledges across the ice themselves. Performing such heavy work in temperatures well below zero requires a lot of energy, and thus, a different sort of diet than you and I may be accustomed to. One day's rations included a can of concentrated fat, 12 lumps of sugar, and half a stick of butter. But Scott was especially fond of Tate & Lyle's light treacle. Dear sir, he wrote to the company, I have pleasure in informing you that your golden syrup has been in daily use in this hut throughout the winter, and has been much appreciated by all the members of the expedition. Even from inside the planet's icebox, the tin can was the only way they could preserve and transport all these perishables. They were also able to prepare for the future, in a way that would have been impossible without canning. Every so often, Scott's team dutifully left behind a cache of food and fuel, lightening their current load and ensuring they would have these vital supplies upon their return trip. All these provisions were sealed away inside reliable cans of tin. Whatever previous hardships the Scott expedition suffered, felt insignificant 
next to the crushing disappointment of January 17th, 1912. As they trudged through the whipping winds and swirling snow toward the southernmost tip of the earth, a dark shape flapped in the air. The Norwegian flag. After two years of grueling travel, walking well over a thousand miles in the world's harshest weather, they arrived only to find that Amundsen's team had beaten them by a few weeks. The worst has happened, Scott wrote in his journal. Great God, this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority. They posed for photographs because the only thing worse would have been not taking photographs, and defeat is plainly visible on the five men's faces. Now for the run home, and a desperate struggle. On their return, Scotsmen had to spread their rations a little thinner than they had on the trip down. Their daily calorie intake decreased from four and a half thousand calories per day down to 3,800 calories per day. That's still nearly twice what a typical person eats in a day, but the Antarctic is an incredibly relentless environment. They were burning nearly 7,000 calories per day, which meant the men were undergoing prolonged starvation. We are getting more hungry, there is no doubt, Scott wrote a few days after the great disappointment. The lunch meal is beginning to seem inadequate. We are pretty thin. They would have lost all their body fat, which is not just the way the body stores surplus energy, but also a valuable layer of insulation that protects the internal organs from the cold. Less insulation meant their bodies would burn calories more quickly in an attempt to stay warm, and their bodies started consuming muscle mass. It was a death spiral. A small glimmer of hope remained in the supply points the team had set up on the trek down, except those two turned into heartbreaking disappointment when the crew discovered open cans of food soaked in pools of kerosene. Tin has one rule, remember. Do not leave it out in the cold. You see, Element 50 exhibits some very unusual behavior. The highly organized crystal structure evidenced by Tin's cry will slowly start to change shape at temperatures below 13 degrees Celsius. The shiny silver allotrope, known as Beta Tin, transforms into the dull gray one called Alpha Tin. The atoms arrange themselves into a lattice that occupies a little more space. The metal expands and loses its durability. 
what was previously solid and sturdy becomes delicate and brittle, crumbling to dust at the slightest touch. It is very plausible that this is what happened to Scott's stashes of canned goods, but not 100% certain. Some people theorize that the cans may have been improperly soldered closed. It's difficult to know for sure, because all five men died on the journey home. We cannot conclude that Tin's allotropic transformation is what sealed their fate. But of the many, many things that went wrong for the explorers, this was certainly one of the most disastrous. What's surprising is that no one involved with the expedition had predicted this. Tin's failure to hold up in the cold has been known for centuries, called Tin Pest or tin disease due to the way it spreads across the metal's surface like an unstoppable infection. Enough other people throughout history have suffered the effects of tin leprosy that there was no reason for the Scott party to join their number. Napoleon's invasion of Russia, a century before Scott's ill-fated undertaking, is an oft-cited example of the catastrophic consequences of Tin Plague. The French army's buttons were made of tin, the story goes, and in the bitter cold of the Russian winter, they moldered to powder. Unable to keep their coats closed against the biting wind and driving rain, Napoleon's soldiers fell ill or froze to death. Were it not for the poor decision of some anonymous, foolish military tailor, surely the grand strategist would have defeated Alexander I, Emperor of all Russia, and changed the course of history. This, of course, is hogwash. It's rather widespread hogwash, though, so it merits a little more myth-busting rather than simply outright dismissal. Fortunately, while preparing a building site in 2001, some Lithuanian construction workers uncovered 7,000 skeletons. After the initial terror wore off, experts were called in, and it was determined that these were the 200-year-old remains of La Grande Armée. Inspection by chemists, pathologists, and a conservationist concluded that the vast majority of buttons were silver or brass. A small number were, in fact, made of tin, but all of those were in relatively decent shape. Considering this lack of physical evidence, and the fact that all known letters and journal entries from the period make no mention of such a wardrobe malfunction, it seems safe to write this story off as a myth. If anything, Napoleon's army suffered from a debilitating lack of tin. Despite paying a small fortune for Appert's invention, Napoleon ordered his men to outpace their own supply trains. The soldiers were forced to provide for themselves by foraging 
and pillaging the lands they invaded. This was made more difficult, however, by the retreating Russians scorching the earth as the French army pursued them. By the time they reached Moscow, it was nothing but an abandoned city in flames. Napoleon had assembled the largest army in history for this campaign, nearly 700,000 soldiers. Only 15% survived to come back home. Cold weather certainly contributed to this tragedy, along with starvation, typhus, dysentery, insubordination, exhaustion, exposure, and impassable terrain, but a reliance on tin was not to blame. Possessing many of the same qualities as tin, but weighing much less, and being far more abundant, aluminum has taken over many of the responsibilities formerly held by Element 50. Language has been slow to catch up, though, meaning most of the things we call tin would actually make inappropriate samples for your collection. Modern-day tin foil and tin cans are two such disappointments. However, there is an active community of people who collect antique tin cans, making this a viable avenue for us to explore. Those are pure enough even for the discerning collector, and they possess appeal for more reasons than their chemical makeup. What previous generations would have thrown away as trash are veritable museum pieces today, showcasing quaintly retro-packaged design and revealing the goods that an increasingly mobile, and fast-paced society would have valued. But perhaps you do not wish to display trash in your home? If you're one of those element collectors with an eye for coins, you might like to pick up a Japanese ten-sen coin from 1944. Due to wartime rationing, those coins were made of 7% zinc, and 93% tin. Grab an additional 9 while you're at it. 10 of them are equal to 1 yen, making them a suitable counterpart to your aluminum yeni. Perhaps the rarest sample you could possibly acquire would be one that's already destined for a display case. An Academy Award. Until 2016, the Oscars were not made of pure gold. Gold-plated most of the time, but underneath the skin was an alloy called Britannia. 2% copper, 6% antimony, and 92% tin. You're not out of luck if you can only get your hands on a post-2016 Oscar, though. Modern statuettes are made of bronze, another alloy that contains tin, if you remember the beginning of the episode. So if you're a chemical collector who happens to be a Hollywood auteur on the side, keep working on that cinematic masterpiece. If you're looking for a fitting subject for your Oscar bait, 
Might I suggest a biopic about Monsieur Appert? Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. There's been a flurry of activity on the blog lately, including an Elements update, a book review, and even an old episode of the show set to video. To see all that and real motion pictures of Scott's doomed trip to the North Pole, visit episodictable.com slash sn. Next time, we'll learn why you might feel acrimony for antimony. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that planet Earth is blue, and there's nothing I can do.